Awesome. Well, hi everybody. Welcome, welcome. Um, happy to happy to be here tonight. And um, you know, it's uh, I know it's Christmas, and there's people that might not, you know, be on. And um, for many people, holidays um, are tough for many compulsive overeaters, for many people who have addiction at all. Um, you know, we come face to face with the people we know and love. Sometimes that creates challenges for us. And there's also a lot of indulging around right now. You know, there's people who are normal who are overeating, you know, and for those of us who are not normal, myself, I'll speak for myself. Um, I don't, I don't have a day that I can overeat safely. You know, the rest of the people around me do. Um, and, um, but tomorrow they'll be back to normal. And if I were to overeat today, there's no, it's unpredictable for me when I, when I would be able to ever get it back, you know? Um, so, um, so I need to be here tonight, you know, for me, um, my disease never takes a holiday, although, you know, sometimes we are called, you know, called away from our meetings and that we're actively participating with our families. But at this point for me, my family is stuffed to the gills. They've all well overeaten. I think they're still downstairs continuing and that's okay. No, no judgment here. Um, but for me, um, you know, life continues on and I'm, I'm so, I'm grateful to be here and I'm great to, grateful to have a purpose and a reason, you know, to come and share and speak tonight. Um, you know, for, um, for tonight, I'm going to, I was going to do step six and seven, but I'm really got. I think I'm just going to stay in step six tonight and I'm going to um, do it directly from the um, AA 12 and 12, you know, just a tiny little bit from the big book and the rest of it's really from the 12 and 12. So, um, you know, here's what it says. It says that step six, when we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And page 76 in the big book says this, if we can answer to our satisfaction, we then look at step six. We've emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. And I think, you know, there's all different ways of that people, you know, interpret the big book. And I think because in the big book, um, step six is given just a little paragraph, you know, um, oftentimes the directions that many people that I've heard share is, um, you know, step six is like, is like less than an hour. It's just, you look at your defects, you ask, do you, are, are you willing to have them removed? And, um, and you answer you know, yes, right? And then you move on. Um, but actually, what I think is interesting, it says, we then look at step six, right? If we're satisfied, if we can answer to our satisfaction, then we look at it. And why do I need to look at it, you know? Um, and, and this, I think the AA 12 and 12 really breaks it down beautifully and helps us to further look at it. Um, so step six emphasizes willingness, you know, and, and I like to think of willingness as, as this, it's, it's, 
it has some essential components. It's made up of desperation and hope. That's those are the those are the ingredients for willingness. So willingness for me means um, taking action, you know, and um, and what makes me willing is when I've experienced a lot of desperation, and that's what brought me here, you know, extreme desperation. And what kept me here and what keeps me taking action is hope. And that's where all of you came in. You know, when I got to witness other people getting well, overcoming their difficulties, that gave me hope. And so that's what makes, you know, that's what makes me willing. And, and for me, that means that I take actions that I might not like and I might not understand. Right. Um, liking it is um, irrelevant, too. I don't have to like it. Um, you know, I heard a, a dear friend say something I thought was brilliant this last week. She said, my my head is not my friend. My It's not my head. That's my friend. My feet are my friend. And so I don't have to like it. I don't have to sit and think about it, but I got to take action. Um, and, you know, and I do it really because everything else has failed. Nothing else worked. Um, you know, and and for me, I would say it always came down to being out of options. When I'm out of the options, I'm willing. Um, you know, I've never let go of anything in my life um, that is still enjoyable and easily managed. If I could easily manage it and enjoy it, I would never, there's no reason to put it down, right? Um, and it has to reach a point of tremendous discomfort. That's usually what happens with us, with our defects. It has to be causing a lot of pain and frustration. And what I learned is that I'm extremely stubborn and I have, you know, I have extreme sensitivity and yet, uh, an incredibly high threshold for pain. I can live a very long time in a tremendous amount of pain and take no action. I, I found that out, you know, <coughs> my body, you know, reaching 300 pounds kept me in a lot of pain and a lot of desperation and it didn't necessarily have me take action. Um, you know, so I needed hope. And when I see people having successful lives, doing well, um, who told me that they were once just as much of a screw up as I once and I am. Um, that gave me hope. And that's why we're told to share our stories. You know, that our stories of transformation is because it gives hope to the still sick and suffering. And those who have recovered told me these are the actions they've taken. And, and that's been true of all of the steps, not just this step six, where I'm going to be willing to have my defects removed. Um, you know, and it seems like a no brainer, right. To, um, to be willing to have your defects removed, you know, cause, um, in fact, it doesn't even sound like it's going to be that difficult, right? Like I should just, okay, I want them removed. Um, they're not doing me any good. Um, and the, you know, and the big book says, uh, you know, it's, it's paragraph, right? So why wouldn't I want to be removed? Because I found out they're causing me to live 
an unsatisfying life. They're keeping me resentful. They're keeping me filled with fear. But when I look closely, what I find out is that I'm not so sure that I want the defect removed. I think mostly what I wanted are the consequences associated with the defect removed. I wanted consequences to go away. You know, and um, in step six in the AA 12 and 12, you know, it starts off that this is the step that separates. I want to read that because I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting that it separates the, the boys from the men or the men from the boys, you know, that it's really that um, it separates the men from the boys, right? Um, and it says that any person capable of enough willingness and honesty to try repeatedly step six on all his faults without reservations, whatever, has indeed come a long way spiritually and is therefore entitled to be called a man, right? Who am I, a woman, right? Um, and so what is my motivation here? You know, it says that um, sincerely trying to grow in the image and likeness of our creator. That's my motivation. That I want the actual defect removed, not just the consequences, because I want to be closer to God by being more like him. You know, not to be God, of course, not to be confused and think that I'm going to be God, but more the way that he created me to be in his likeness. And my defects are the things that are blocking me. You know, the consequences are uncomfortable and miserable, yes, but the defects themselves are what keeps us from our creator. It's what kept me from my creator. So then the next question is, can God do this, right? And followed by, will God do this, right? Those are the questions. And the second paragraph on page 63 says this, to AA members, this proposition will be no theory at all. It will be just the largest fact of his life. He will usually offer proof in a statement like this. Sure, I was beaten, absolutely licked, my own willpower just wouldn't work on alcohol for me. It just wouldn't work on food. Change of scene, the best efforts of family, friends, doctors, and clergymen got no place with my alcoholism. It got no place with my food addiction, no place with my compulsive overeating. I simply couldn't stop drinking and no human being could do the job for me. I simply could not stop obsessing about food and no human could remove that obsession from me but when I became willing to clean house and then asked a higher power God as I understood him to give me release my obsession to drink vanished it was lifted right out of me and I actually had the opportunity to share with someone today that that is what happened for me with food that the desire, the obsession to eat compulsively, to eat all that junk that's downstairs in my house right now was just lifted from me so that I'm no longer calling upon willpower. 
on a holiday like today, the desire simply was removed. And, you know, and that's the absolute truth for those of us who've been released, who've had this release. Um, I'm not unique. You know, I'm not some fluke. I've heard this again and again. And, and I've experienced this act of providence, you know, the miracle of healing. So I know that God certainly can. I know it. You know, all I need to do is re-examine my conception of God. If I'm doubting it, I'll re-examine my conception. In step two, I was asked to come to a conclusion that God is either everything or else he's nothing. Meaning I'm either going to give it all to God or it's as if I gave God nothing. And in order to move forward, I had to choose everything. I had to say, yep, I'll give him everything. And I was also given directions at that point. All right, well, then form your own conception of God. And then I was supplied with some descriptions that, for me, helped me form my conception, helped me form my start. And, you know, in the big book, We Agnostics, page 56, it says this in the fourth paragraph, the presence of infinite power and love. And, you know, and we're told that we can live in conscious companionship with our creator. So, of course, of course God can if he's infinite power. And of course he will if he's infinite love, right? And now if I want to live in an awakened friendship with this incredibly loving power, then I've got work to do. If I want to live in that close companionship, that relationship, then I've got an assignment. And here's my assignment. Be entirely ready. And then, of course, be entirely willing to cooperate, right? If I want to live in companionship, I'm going to cooperate with my companion. Um, and I would say it's just the same way that I cooperated with the removal of my obsession to eat. It is directly related. I think step six is, is for me, it's very similar to look at step six, like step one. And step seven, like step two. So I was willing, you know, I, I cooperated with the removal of my obsession to eat. And here's what I did. I was willing to get a food plan, perhaps from a nutritionist. That's what I did. Um, I started weighing and measuring my food. I committed my food plan to a sponsor each day, ensuring that it did not have things in it that triggered my allergy. I went food shopping, right? I did the food shopping. I bought the vegetables. I washed them and I chopped them and I weighed them. But in no way did I remove my own obsession to eat. I just cooperated. I absolutely cooperated. And it's the same with my defects, right? I don't remove the defects, but I cooperate. And so then the problem is in my willingness to cooperate. That's always my problem. And when we're certain that it's life or death, I think it's a lot easier to cooperate. When, when you're sure you're out of ideas and it, it's going to kill you, you get, I, I got pretty cooperative with that. You know, on page 64 and in the 12 and 12, it says this, the bottom part. But most of our other difficulties don't fall under such a category at all. Meaning, 
if it's not clearly killing me, then my willingness can waver. Especially when the defects are tied in with my instincts and my natural drives. But much like my instinct to eat when I feel hungry, right? So top of page 65 says, we often let these far exceed their intended purpose. We want more satisfaction or more pleasures than are possible or do us. Page 66 says this, what we must recognize now is that we exalt in some of our defects. We really love them. And the bottom of page 67 explains that few of us would seriously think of giving them up least until they cause us excessive misery. So the defects that we glorify, value, that are enjoyable, are the greatest challenges. And what are some examples? Well, feeling superior. There's an example, because it feels really good to feel superior. Who, for example, doesn't like to feel just a little superior to the next fellow, or even quite a lot superior, right? Who doesn't like that? I think about how I would often pass judgment on others who behave in ways that I feel are wrong or even immoral. Um, and I can look down on them. I can look down on colleagues, on relatives, on neighbors, even on family members and people I love. I can feel superior to them. And it's important, of course, to pray for the people who upset me, right? We all know that sick man's prayer, but we have to be careful when we say it. Are we passing judgment, right? Are we feeling ourselves superior when we call another person sick? and saying we have to tolerate them. And the truth, it's ourselves we have to tolerate. My discomfort I feel when others are not doing what I want them to do, that's what I need to pray for. That's the tolerance that I need to have to grow my thicker skin is what I say here. Okay, so here's another defect that we rather exalt and enjoy greed. Isn't it true that we like to let greed masquerade as ambition? That's what it says, that we're ambitious. And, you know, greed is intense and selfish desire for something, especially wealth, power, food. And it can easily be a defect we hang on to because it feels good. feels good. And it frankly seems like... It's valued by society, you know, and it seems as though we're just having success and drive, right? And um, and the outside world values it. They see you as being, you know, a self-starter, self-made, right? A go-getter. It looks, sounds really good. There's lots of great ways to sort of frame that with our with our language. Um, so we, you know, we exalt it and we glorify it. Um, and then there's self-righteous anger. And I'm going to, I'll go back to that one. Um, okay, now gluttony, which is similar to greed. It's habitual greed or excess and usually in eating, right? Um, and it's an overindulgence and an overconsumption of food, drink, or wealth items, especially things that are status symbols. And the problem is that 
it feels good in the moment. And I think we have to be careful because sometimes people come to Overeaters Anonymous via another 12-step program. And oftentimes the, um, their food addiction might have been viewed as a step six issue, that they were just greedy and maybe gluttonous. And that might be true for some, but for the real compulsive overeater, for the food alcoholic, it's our, our step one understanding is not just greed. My problem with food is not just greed. However, I can still be greedy where food is concerned. Here's, here's an example, right? I like a certain type of apples. I like a certain type of pears. There's different fruit in my refrigerator downstairs. All of them are able for me to be eaten. If I know that I'm down to my last honey crisp apple, but I have some others that I think are less good, right? And my kids are over and they want one. Am I greedy or do I share what I have, right? And that for me is like a prime example um, because it's not a problem food for me to per se, but I can certainly be greedy about it and be like, oh, don't eat that one, you know? Um, and I can't, I, I have to let go of my greed, of my gluttony, of wanting what I want, um, regardless of how good it feels in the moment, you know, getting my way. And I can justify it by saying, but you guys can eat everything else. Um, you know, and, and so I have to be willing to not justify it. Um, that's cooperation. Um, envy. Here's another one. This is on page 67. It says, we consume such great amounts of time wishing for what we had, not rather than working for it or angrily looking for attributes we shall never have instead of adjusting to the fact and accepting. You know, so I would be envious of people who had what I wanted and I never considered the efforts that they went through in order to get those things, you know, or I would only see what they had that looked good, but I didn't see them as multidimensional human beings with real struggles and difficulties too. And, you know, and I think for a long time, my mantra was that's not fair. It's not fair that she has blank or why can't I be so lucky? You know, it was always easier for me to attribute their good fortunes as being fortunate or lucky rather than actually seeing that there might have been work that happened behind the scenes. Um, here's another one, procrastination. Page 67 calls it this. Procrastination, which is really sloth in five syllables. Five syllables for lazy basically. Um, I could procrastinate and dream about perfection. Procrastination, they say, is perfection mixed with a poor work ethic, right? So I'm perfectionistic, but I'm not working very hard. Um, and it's also something that feeds that adrenaline rush that some of us get by getting things done at the last minute. I used to get a high off that. I'd wait to the very last minute, get it done, under the wire. I used to do that with, you know, with writing report cards. That was like part of what I would do. 
I would wait to the very last minute and I would um, wait on writing, doing my report cards and doing my progress reports or even, you know, back in college doing the papers. And then I could justify the binge because I would binge as I was doing it. You know, and I remember back to the, you know, the days when I used to drink a lot, I would drink a lot. I would have my snacks all lined up and my bottle of wine. And um, and by the time I was doing the last of those report cards, I was completely buzzed. You know, I was like, and I thought I was on a roll. You know, I thought like, I'm just on a roll. Um, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what I said that was, you know, of any value at that point, but um, I would get it done under the wire. I, I can't, first of all, I don't do that at all anymore. And I, part of wanting that removed means that um, I got to have a plan in place for myself. You know, I can't wait till the last minute. It means, you know, I do, I do five a day, right? That's how I get it done. When they, when I, the quarter's coming to an end, I do five a day until they're done. And that's a reasonable way to do it. And then I'm never having that nervous adrenaline rush. It's just paced like a normal person. Um, Self-righteous anger. Okay. I said I was going to get back to that one because this is a big one for me. And, and I think it's a big one for many people. Most people who struggle with their defects will find self-righteous anger is the one that bites them in the butt more and more. Um, and I've seen more people lose their abstinence, lose their recovery over anger that they are entitled or believe that they're entitled to have. Um, and it's a big one for me. It's all wrapped up with feeling superior. Page six, uh, Page 67 says this in the 12 and 12. Self-righteous anger can also be very enjoyable. In a perverse way, we can actually take satisfaction from the fact that many people annoy us. <laughs> For it brings a comfortable feeling of superiority. Gossip barbed with our anger, a polite form of murder by character assassination has its satisfactions for us too. Here, we are not trying to help those we criticize. We're trying to proclaim our own righteousness. And I think that paragraph is pretty like, yikes, when you read it, the thought of murder, right? That, that we're murder by character assassination. Um, and I discovered I really enjoyed my resentment sometimes. I felt oddly powerful in my self-righteous indignation. You know, I'd be so worked up. And felt, it felt good to be that angry. Um, you know, someone would do something that was so clearly wrong. And then what I could do is I could retell over and over what they did to me. Right? I could just keep telling other people. And in fact, I could get a lot of mileage out of a minor slight. And if I was right, oh boy, I would just retell that story over and over and tell myself that I was just venting. I'm just venting, I would say. But venting actually increases the flames of resentment. Right? And if you think about a fire, 
you're bringing more oxygen. When you open up the vent, you vent a fire. That fire burns bigger. It does not put the fire out. You know, and how does this show up in my life? It's usually in gossip and complaining. And I say that complaining, you know, and gossip for me is like eating potato chips. You know, at first it's enjoyable. It's tasty. It seems harmless. You know, you just have a little bit, but it goes on endlessly. It's it's addictive. Can't stop it. And um, and when I'm done, just like I used to feel after I ate a bag of potato chips, greasy and sick. I don't feel satisfied. I don't feel better. Um, you know, and I also had it pointed out to me years ago, and I think this is really a brilliant thing, powerful, that um, that gossiping is a form of, of cheap intimacy. It's getting close with another person at another person's expense. And it's not even real closeness, it's fake closeness. Um, you know, and I had some relationships that were almost entirely built upon that kind of cheap intimacy that we had a shared pastime of complaining and gossiping. And what happened was um, I needed to let go of this pastime in step six as a demonstration of my willingness to have God remove the defect of resentment. I could not ask God to take away the resentment that I was feeling and keep on complaining and keep on talking about those other people. It it it's like it's like continuing to eat ice cream and expecting the desire to be removed. It doesn't it doesn't happen that way. I actually had to stop it first. I had to put it down, and then God could remove it. Um, and I'd say what was really difficult about this in particular is especially in certain situations where the relationship was built on cheap intimacy, I had to get comfortable being alone. I had to be comfortable not being part of what felt like a group, felt like a clique. It felt like, you know, I didn't belong in certain places anymore. And the truth is I didn't belong in certain places anymore. You know, but I didn't have, I didn't have the strength to say, I can't, you know, you people aren't good for me. But what I found out was when I stopped engaging in those behaviors, those people stopped being interested in my company as well, you know, and, you know, rejection is God's protection. I didn't have the strength to remove myself. Um, so God gave me a hand, you know, when I didn't engage in those conversations, what happened at work is that, um, you know, there's a complaint train that, that chugs on down the track of the hallway and they don't stop at my room anymore because that station's closed. Right. But it also means that sometimes there's people congregating across the hall and I'm not there and I'm not invited. And I gotta be okay with that, you know? Um, that's not easy, you know? But nobody said that, you know, living in agreement with what you believe God's will is for you is gonna be easy. 
but the rewards have been tremendous, you know, and I'll tell you as an aside, what happened for me is when your station is closed to, to the, to the complaint train that's rolling down the track, it actually is open to other trains that are rolling down the track. Like people, I've made different friends, people that I never would have cultivated a relationship before because there's space in my room for them. There's space in my day for them. There's things that I'm able to do and people that I'm able to connect with. I've been in that building 26 years. Some of these people have been virtual strangers to me, you know? Um, and, um, you know, so what I do is in step six, it's the work of my lifetime. And I practice the behaviors of a person who is free from this defect, defect as best I can. And I think of it, it's my abstinent behavior plan. Just like in step one, I need an abstinent food plan. I need to stay on my food plan if I want God to remove the desire to eat compulsively. And, you know, and it means I have to stay on my abstinent behavior plan if I want God to remove desires. So they don't get removed if I still practice them. If I want my resentment to be removed, you know, I have to know what am I going to do instead of gossip and complain? Well, you know, believe it or not, I actually had to make a list because it was foreign to me. I had to make a list. All right, what am I going to do instead? Like a little cheat sheet, you know? Um, and one of the things I realized that I needed to be doing was when someone offended me or did something that was perhaps wrong, I actually needed to open up my mouth instead of be being a um, peace faker because I was a peace faker. And then I could talk about them behind their back while I faked peace, you know, and you know, interestingly enough, something actually came up today. My brother sent me a text asking me to do something and I didn't want to do it. And, and um, it's really okay for me to say no. My knee-jerk reaction was, ugh, now I have to do it. And then I was going to like gather up a posse of people that I can complain to about what my, what my brother's asking me to do. And thankfully, I, you know, I called a dear friend and I said what happened. And she said, well, say no. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think of that as an option. But that actually is because I'm a peace. I'm a peace faker. You know, I'm a people pleaser. Because if I if you're pleased with me, then um, then I don't have to worry about conflict. You know, I don't have to deal with conflict. I I can be the martyr. You know, um, and someone else, you know, reminded me that um, we were not asked to be martyrs, right? We don't have to die to please other people. That That's no longer, you know, that's not on the table anymore. You know, and so what? another thing that I can do, you know, is um, when I'm with other people that I would normally gossip with, I don't. How about that? I just don't. I say something honestly positive about the other person that I normally would have trashed. And or I find something else of a complete positive nature that I can talk about. And an example of this, you know, would be like I would gossip with coworkers by either initiating it or participating in it. And I would zero in on something that someone else had done that was wrong you know, self-righteous indignation, they were wrong. 
And most of the time, they actually were wrong. There was a real wrong there, right? It's not, that's not even the point. Um, but it wasn't necessary for me to talk about it. It was really unnecessary. And so when colleagues are gossiping, I have to remove myself from the conversation or, right, I say something positive, I lovingly change the subject. And I found that, you know, nothing is quite as effective as talking about people's grandchildren or children. You wanna bring positivity and light to a conversation, ask someone about their grandchildren, their whole face and demeanor changes, everybody's lights up, they can't wait to tell you about their wonderful grandchildren or their children. Or if you know someone loves golf, talk about their golf game, talk about their new car, anything that brings them joy and pleasure that's not at the expense of someone else is actual intimacy and not cheap intimacy, right? And so um, I can exercise discipline and gently redirect the conversation. And if I can't do that, I say nothing. I just say nothing. Um, you know, I let let the let it die. Let that conversation, let the negative comment, just die in the air. And I found that the more I do that, the more I've been able to release the resentments. That those actions don't keep the resentments alive. You know, another way that I would hang on to resentments would be through my self righteous indignation and justified anger. You know, things like political arguments trolling the news, trolling social media outlets, revisiting workplace injustices. Again, I feel like I'm right in those situations. You know, and again, I learned that being right isn't a good enough reason to kill myself over. Because if I harbor resentments, meaning I make my resentments a safe place to hang out in, with me, I'm in danger of dying. That's what the book tells me, that it will kill me because it will. I will return to the food and to eat is to die. I can't be a safe place for those resentments. So I'm actually in the greatest danger when I feel entitled to harbor those resentments, when I feel like I should keep them with me, right? So then what do I do? How do I demonstrate willingness to let go of the resentments that I feel entitled to? Well, for one, I can stay off social media if I need to. Something that I've done that has helped me tremendously is I limit my time on Facebook. And if there's wonderful, you know, there's wonderful like little options and things you can do on there. If there's a particular type of post that incites that kind of resentment, anything that's that's combative, political for me, I hide it. I, I ask that I not receive those, you know? And if somebody does too many of those posts for my own good, I don't defriend them, but I choose the option where I don't see their, I don't see their stuff anymore. And that's great for me. I don't have to see it, you know? Um, I choose to only read positive posts. You know, I can limit how much news I watch. Um, you know, at one time I was so outraged by the state of the world 
that I had to make a commitment, you know, um, to watch only 30 minutes of news a day. That was at one point, I was like only 30 minutes a day. And then I found that I, I couldn't even keep that commitment. It was too difficult for me. So I asked, I asked my husband at one point for help. I just said, I got to stay off the news entirely. Do you, can I trust that if there's something huge that I need to know in order to stay safe, will you just let me know? And he was like, yeah, okay, no problem. You know, and I just had to stay off it entirely. Um, you know, I had to let him be in charge of disseminating information to me. Um, you know, I also made a commitment that whatever time I spent um, reading and watching the news, that I would match that time with prayer. Because information is not transformation. Just being informed about the state of the world doesn't necessarily help me to overcome life's difficulties. Um, but prayer does, you know, prayer changes me. And so what I've done for myself in hard times is, you know, I write prayers for the horrors of war. I write prayers for the victims, for the safety of victims of war, hardship for the political state of my country. You know, I say prayers for the status of my school, for what's going on in my district. And I begin saying them anytime I'm getting worked up over anything that has me in fear or self-righteousness, because I have very strong opinions. <laughs> and being human, what I've found is that I start looking for new stories that support my already established opinions. I'm not looking to, to grow. That's been my truth. That, you know, if I'm honest with myself, it's not that I have this widely open mind. I have an established view of how I see things. And I have been very intentional about only going on channels that support my view, only reading certain, you know, publishings that support my view. And, and I find the rest of the world is guilty of the same thing. We all kind of view the news through the lens that that fits our own life perspective. And so that leads me to increased resentments, you know? And so um, I've had to do the same kind of thing about matching my news watching with prayer. I had to do that with the flaws in public education. You know, there's a, I work in a broken system. That's the truth. And there's inequities in nutrition that my students get. There's inequities in their resources. And there's inequity in the way that us teachers are, you know, treated. That's all true. And I can spend my time researching statistics that support the theories I have. And they're all over the place, right? But I have to consistently pray for God's direction and care in these things because they're outside of my control. I pray for the school leaders and I pray, you know, because they're being called upon to make decisions. And I pray for my union representatives who will need to have the strength and wisdom to see things where the leadership may have overlooked. But I am not best suited to be in either one of those two roles. I leave that up to people who are better able to metabolize the anger that those situations incite. It's not good for me. I, my step one understanding tells me who I am. 
I'm a distinct entity. Those things are not good for me. But I can bring other things to my workplace. I can bring a smile. I can bring positivity, um, comfort, love. I can be, you know, a, a, a voice of, of compassion rather than a voice of anger, you know? And so even though I'm willing to have these defects removed, I'm powerless to the actual removal of them. I cannot make myself no longer feel something. I am not able to stop the feeling. I do not have that power. So what do I do then, right? That's where step seven comes in, right? That's where we ask God to, we humbly ask him. But in the meantime, I cooperate and I participate with God as though the defects have been removed. And the more I do that, the more peace that I've had, the more I have found that some of those great defects that I had at one time, they really don't exist anymore. You know, they really have been more and more removed. And I'll just sort of end with this. When I fall off the mark, because sometimes I don't cooperate with my creator, I have a loving creator that accepts for me my heartfelt apologies, my heartfelt amen. And I think, you know, oftentimes it's our step 10 that helps us demonstrate our true step six decision. And um, with that, I'll pass.